In the western United States, water law is based on what seems like a simple principle. First in use is first in right. In other words, first come, first served. But take a severe drought, a Native American tribe, and a hard scrabble band of ranchers, and it's actually pretty complicated. Jason Albert has our story. I'm Don Gentry, chairman of the Klamath Tribes. Uh, my Klamath name is Gitchy Gyunk, which means uh, having done good things. The Klamath are based here in Oregon's upper Klamath Basin, about 50 miles north of the California border. This is high desert country. In March, the Klamath County Circuit Court approved the principle of first come, first serve for the tribes. It accepted that not only were the Klamath tribes here first, but that they've been here since time immemorial, in other words, forever. So all the rights that we have, including the, uh, the surviving water right, it's an inalienable right. It's an uh, inherent right from being the first people of this land. So in terms of Western water law, I think it's appropriate, and it's based on that legal principle, first in time, first in right. Because we were first here, we have that first in time right. What that means is that when there's not enough water to go around, the Klamath get first dibs on what water there is. Sometimes she'll chase those chickens out of there. That leaves people like Becky Hyde here, well, high and dry. So my name is Becky Hyde, and I am a rancher along uh, the Saikan River, which is a tributary to the Sprague, which goes into Upper Klamath Lake and then um, flows on down uh, the Klamath River. Hyde and her family have been ranching here for decades. Both of them grew up in Western ranching families, so they understand that this problem is older than any of us. Around the water, there's just this tension, there's this natural tension about people who had, had been on the land before and kind of where, where we find ourselves today. Which, for Becky Hyde and the 200 or so other ranchers and farmers in this area, means living on a ranch with cattle to raise and not enough water to do it. We'll get back to Don Gentry and Becky Hyde in a minute. But to understand how we got to this point, we have to go back almost 150 years. In 1864, just a few years after Oregon and California became states, the Klamath tribe signed a treaty with the federal government. The Klamath gave the United States around 23 million acres of land. The tribes kept 2.2 million acres for a reservation and hunting and fishing rights within its borders. If this sounds like a raw deal, it's because it was. Tribes that had lived on this land for hundreds, if not thousands of years, lost all claim to it, just like that. They lost it magically when Europeans arrived on the shore and planted their flag and cross uh, in the soil. Bob Miller is a scholar of Native American law at the Arizona State University. 
He is a citizen of the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma and the Chief Justice of the Grand Ronde Tribe's Court of Appeals. And they were justifying it under this international law that white European Christians were superior to the indigenous peoples around the world and God meant for them to have the lands and the assets of indigenous people. So that is really what the doctrine of discovery is, and it's still American Indian law today. Miller talks a lot about the doctrine of discovery in his work. It was laid out in 1455, saying that Christians owned any land or other assets they discovered, even if they were occupied or owned by the indigenous people who are already there. The U.S. adopted the idea in the Constitution. That settled the question of who could deal with tribes and sign treaties with them, who could engage in trade with tribes, and most importantly, who could buy tribal lands. And it was only the federal government. That is absolutely still the law to this day. In the U.S., the doctrine of discovery means that only the federal government has the right to negotiate with Native American tribes. That left the government with all the bargaining power, and the Native Americans with little recourse. The government was also supposed to look out for the tribe's best interests. In the case of the Klamath, once they were on the reservation, the government stopped paying attention. Instead, it started diverting the water from the entire area to other land to encourage people to move west and start farming or ranching. Bob Miller says nobody thought it would matter. I think all Americans, the federal government, the state governments, thought tribes would be pushed into extinction or that they would assimilate. Except the tribes survived and mostly didn't assimilate, including the Klamath, who for nearly 100 years proved resilient. They owned several lumber mills and some sizable cattle ranches. But in 1954, the situation turned dire when Congress passed the Termination Act, which would supposedly encourage Native Americans to assimilate by moving them off the reservations. The Klamath were one of the first groups the federal government stopped recognizing. They were forced to sell off all but a few kilometers of the reservation lands. The result was devastating. Social decay ensued. Drug abuse, alcoholism, poverty, and crime all increased. Those are all a result of what happened with termination. Termination was the most economically devastating action that occurred in this area. I mean, we had several tribally owned mills, and uh, we also had pretty extensive cattle operations. So after termination, a lot of that went away, and we're still recovering from that. Even so, in 1975, the tribe filed a case that ended up going to the U.S. District Court of the District of Oregon. The Klamath argued the treaty they signed with the government in 1864 included water rights. Don Gentry, the tribal chairman, says that's because the treaty explicitly included the right to hunt, fish, and gather plants on the reservation. If you're talking about uh, uh, fishing, if you're talking about trapping uh, you're, and hunting, uh, it's... Uh, basically implied that uh, you need to have uh, harvestable uh, resources. Water's important to the, the harvestability of those resources. What he means is you can only hunt and fish if there's enough water for the animals and fish to live. And you can't pick plants if there's not enough water for them to grow. The U.S. District Court agreed, saying the Klamath had to have access to enough water to maintain its traditional way of life but there's only so much water to go around. 
and since the early 1900s, an extensive irrigation system has diverted water from the Klamath River and its tributaries to ranches and farms in the area. Those rivers feed into the upper Klamath Lake. The shallow lake is home to a fish called Still our Twam, which is a Lost River sucker. And another uh, called The Kaptu, short-nosed sucker. Both of those are on the endangered species list. And both of which are traditional subsistence food to the Klamath tribes. Don Gentry says around here, people think irrigating fields is more important than fish swimming around in some lake. And I think that there's this feeling that uh, an in-stream right for fish is, isn't quite as valid and justifiable as uh, consumptive use for agricultural purposes. That's something that we always contend with. The irrigation systems, meanwhile, are like something a corn or tomato farmer uses. But in this case, they water what amounts to enormous lawns, which in turn feed herds of cattle, like the ones Becky Hyde and her family raise. The proceeds from raising those cattle, for us, you know, go back into making a payment on the land here. For people like the Hydes, water is quite literally money. For the tribes, water makes sure they have their fish. Bob Miller, the law professor, says that helps explain why the question of water rights is so fraught. Because you take people's water away. You know the old saying in the West, whiskey's for drinking, water is for fighting. The Upper Klamath Basin watermaster is Scott White, the person who's responsible for enforcing water regulations. His title gives you an idea of how important his job is. We manage and regulate four senior water rights. And what that means is whoever has the oldest water right, they are the last to get shut off in times of, of water shortage. To figure out who has the oldest water rights, the state goes through a process called adjudication, where it looks at everybody's land claims. Um, in 1975, we uh, announced that we were going to adjudicate the Klamath Basin. It was so complicated, it took a full 38 years to figure out who owned what land when, and how much water each person was entitled to. But while the state was working on that problem, the Federal District Court for Oregon said the Klamath tribes were entitled to as much water on the reservation lands as they needed to protect their hunting and fishing rights, and that they had owned it since time immemorial. That is to say, when there's not enough water, the Klamath tribes claim trump everybody else's, even people like Becky Hyde, whose land has water rights going back to the mid-1800s. This is the lake. Scott White, the watermaster, is showing me the map. This is Becky's. Gotcha. All along the rivers are different colored dots. The different dots indicate the, uh, the, the priority of the rights. So we know, you know, the, the deepest blue dots have the oldest water rights. We go to greens and then oranges and then red for being the most junior. The more junior you are, the sooner you lose your water when there's not enough to go around. John Gentry, the tribal leader, says that with 2013's low snowpack and summertime drought, Klamath Lake was getting too low. In order to protect our treaty resources, uh, we needed to make a call. It was the first time the Klamath put in a call. In other words, made an official claim to the water. I will do my best to... The watermaster, Scott White, went around to all the ranches and farms in the basin who get water from the river and turned off the spigot. Like a repo man, except instead of taking cars or boats, That's he took water. Becky Hyde was one of the people he took it from. As she puts it... This sort of situation really throws this entire um, community 
into a pretty traumatic lurch. Hyde moved their cattle to her parents' ranch a few hours to the northeast. Some neighbors moved their cattle too. Others bought feed for the animals. Hyde knows what's at stake. She understands why the Klamath think they should have priority. She also knows if there's another water shortage, the Klamath tribes can make another call for water. And she knows it will probably happen, because there's just not enough water to go around anymore. So Hyde has been working towards a different kind of settlement with other ranchers, the Klamath tribes, and other stakeholders, hoping for an agreement that would make sure everybody gets some water, even when there's not really enough to go around. She's also hoping for rain. Hyde grew up on what's called a dry ranch in eastern Oregon, one that had no irrigation. And uh, I know that this time of year, if, uh, if it would rain, my dad would always say, you know, boy, this is a, a million-dollar rain. And I think about it now, and I think, no, it's more like a billion-dollar rain. Hyde and I are sitting in her yard. The brown grass is waving in the afternoon breeze. On the horizon, a massive cloud rolls in, covering the surrounding hillsides in shadow. It looks like rain. For Life of the Law, I'm Jason Albert. And I'm Nancy Mullane. Water Rights was reported by Jason Albert, edited by Julia Barton, and produced by Caitlin Prest. Howard Gelman of KQED is our engineer. Life of the Law is funded by the Open Society Foundations, the National Science Foundation, the Law and Society Association, and the Proteus Fund. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Infinite Guest Network of podcasts from American Public Media. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We'd like to ask you to share your stories about the law in your life. Was there a moment when you came face to face with the law? Was it in court or maybe out on the street? Did you know the rules or were you alone? Were you with friends? How'd it turn out? We'd like to ask you to record yourself using the voice memo app on your smartphone. You can email it to our team at connect at lifeofthelaw.org or you can write out your story and send it to us at connect at lifeofthelaw.org. You can also give us a call and leave your story on our voicemail, 415-761-1LAW or 415-761-1529. Next week on our sister podcast, Live Law. When I was born, I had three strikes against me and uh, never played baseball, never played. My My three strikes was I was born a girl, born black, and born two alcoholic uh, parents. I was doomed in. I knew I was. That's next week on Live Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. Till I look up and you'd be gone. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America.